Thank you, Brad. Man, it is so good to be back with you guys. Uh, I admire Brad so much and um, said this last time, it doesn't go without saying again, that he has led through some challenges uh, here at Adventure, but uh, because of his leadership, the best days of this church are still before us, and uh, we are just so privileged to have him as our lead pastor here at Adventure. Um, and I want to say also that we're very privileged to have Matt Vaughn as our worship pastor. Can we give it up just for Matt and Brad? They're doing such a good job. <clears throat> now, what I love about Matt and Brad are these are some guys that just aren't impressed with themselves, but they love to have fun. They love Jesus. They love the mission of Jesus, and they wholeheartedly uh, believe in it. Uh, by show of hands, how many of you are done with uh, Christmas shopping? Anybody? Okay, everybody with their hand up, you're what we might call an overachiever. Okay. Anybody not started yet? All right. Yeah, you are my people. All right. Yeah, I haven't either. That's good. I need your help here for just a second, okay? I'm going to ask for some participation. Uh, I am going to say the line from a very famous, iconic Christmas movie, okay? And then I just want you to guess what movie it is. Okay, so I need your participation here. First one is going to be rather easy. All right, the line is this. The teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. What, what movie? It's a Wonderful Life. Very good. All right, here, here's the next one, a little, bit, a little bit harder. Just because you can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Anybody? The Santa Claus. Very good. Very good. Okay, here, here's, here's your third one. It's easier. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. Home alone, very good. How about this one? Can I refill your eggnog? Eggnog, get you something to eat, drive you out in the middle of nowhere and leave you for dead? Any guesses? Christmas vacation, very, very good, yeah. You know, don't trust anybody that hasn't seen Christmas vacation at least twice a season, okay? Now, if you've never even seen Christmas vacation, I don't know if you're a Christian. I'm kidding. Kind of. Uh, well, as Brad said, we're going to keep going in this series that uh, was kicked off a few weeks ago. Where we've been looking at the different titles given to Jesus several hundred years before he was actually born, before his, his birth. And, and each of these titles kind of give us a snapshot of, of who Jesus is. Like a movie trailer before it's released, these names preview the identity of Jesus, but also what Jesus came to accomplish, Okay. Now, this section of scripture that we've been bouncing out of each week, found in the book of Isaiah, is what's referred to as a prophecy, okay? Now, this isn't something weird, although it kind of has that connotation these days. Prophecy was simply God's way of offering a snapshot of the future so that his people would know, hey, no matter what, I've got your back. All right, I, I see you. I'm, I'm with you. That, that's what prophecy is really all about. And so the Lord chose a guy by the name of Isaiah to communicate this. And the description of the very first Christmas starts out like this. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Isaiah tells us that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, we know that today is really no different, Right? I mean, first off, there's darkness all around us. All right, we've grown numb as a country to mass shootings. There's the constant threat of nuclear war, depression, and suicide rates continue to escalate. Kids are being taught at a very young age they can choose their gender, and there's darkness all around us. But 
But there's not only darkness in our culture and in our society. If we're honest with ourselves, there's also a lot of darkness inside of us too. Whether we admit it or not, whether we know it or not, we contribute to this darkness. And, And typically, this form of darkness shows up in our relationships with other people. That's when this darkness has manifested itself in its clearest, most apparent way. Uh, just last month, okay, I was, uh, I was merging onto the Waterson Expressway when out of nowhere this gray BMW cut me off. I had to veer off onto the uh, emergency shoulder, and as soon as I did that, I mean, I was angry. I may have led by just laying on my horn and letting this guy just have it. I mean, I was trying to retaliate the best way I knew how, and it didn't help when I looked up and he had given me the one-finger salute. He was very upset that I was honking at him, and apparently that wasn't enough because he then proceeded to open up his sunroof and started double-fisting, giving me the bird. I mean, I was so upset and, again, just continued to lay on the horn. And i got to be honest with you, I didn't do Anything more than that, I didn't retaliate the one-finger salute, mainly because I was worried that he might go to Adventure Christian Church, and I was scheduled to preach here that weekend, and figured that wouldn't be very good, and eventually he sped off, and as that happened, I was listening to a sermon in my car that was all about being quick to forgive and slow to anger. I just turned it off. But as I drove down the highway, I thought to myself, as dust kind of settled, I thought, well, some pastor you are. Way to control yourself, Patrick. Way to be patient. And every now and then, my darkness surprises me. I don't know if you can identify with that in any way. I mean, you've had moments like that as well. You maybe got recently into an argument with your wife, and the next thing you knew, you got heated, and you ended up calling her a name. Maybe more recently, you cheated on a chemistry test because you have to be eligible to play basketball for this season. That's, that's really important. Or you recently took out a credit card to hide from your spouse so that you can make some purchases that, that you want to make. Or maybe you were curious when the ad popped up and the next thing you knew, nobody was around, so you started watching porn. I would say that most of the time, we don't mean, we don't mean to dabble in darkness. But there is a creeping effect that takes place. And all it takes is one step into the darkness, and the next thing you know, we end up doing something. We end up saying something that just even will catch us off guard. It will, it will surprise us as well. That's why the book of Romans says that we've been sold under sin. Paul, the writer, expounds upon that by saying this. He goes, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing that, that I hate. And so let's ask a very honest question in here today. If Jesus really came as light, why does it seem that the darkness appears to be winning? Why does the darkness seem so dominant at times? Take a look at uh, later on in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This has kind of been our anchor text for this whole series. Here's what he says about Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and we've been looking at each of these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Now, you see, back in this culture, names carried significant weight and, and meaning. They weren't just a label to identify someone. They actually made a statement about the individual. They made a statement about the person. And so right here in our text, okay, Jesus is elevated to the eternal equal with the Lord God by referring to him as the everlasting Father. All right, this means that Jesus is the source and author of all of eternity. In other words, he advocates on our behalf to our Father in heaven. And so to expound upon this a little bit more, what I want to do is I want to kind of springboard off of Isaiah 9-6 into Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles or you have a Bible app on your phone or digital device, I want you to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1, okay? Colossians chapter 1, it was written by that same guy we mentioned a minute ago, a guy by the name of Paul. He at one point led a very dark life. He was kind of a modern day terrorist who killed a lot of Christians because he believed that he was right and they were wrong and they were against God and he was for God and so he ended up being a terrorist. And then one day he bumps into Jesus and the next thing we know he is advancing the gospel, the message of Jesus all across the world at the time. And and so he writes this letter to one of his churches. Pick up with me in verse 13 of Colossians chapter 1. We read this. He says, Jesus has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. See this theme playing out here again. He's delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, one of the most common forms of imagery for Jesus that we see all throughout Scripture is this picture of light entering darkness. He's rescued us from the darkness around us, but he's also rescued us from the darkness inside of us and has delivered us, okay, into the kind of life that we were designed to live here and now. Now, the word we translate into English as transferred in verse 13 would have been very vivid for the original audience. Because back in the ancient world, okay, when one empire conquered another empire, another nation, the custom was to take all the people from the defeated nation and transfer them into the conqueror's land. And so this caused, you see, a change of identity. This caused a change of citizenship. It was a significant transference that occurred. Darkness used to be our home, Paul is saying. It used to be what defined us. It used to be where we resided. But then something happened. All of a sudden, Jesus showed up and has offered us something much better. We get to experience a rescue in that same type of transference. Look at verse 15. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You see, Christmas is a big deal. Christmas is significant because it represents the moment in time when the God of the universe chose to live as a person in this dark and broken world. Jesus is the perfect representation of the Lord God. One time Jesus told his followers, hey, whoever has seen me has also seen my Father in heaven. When this letter was uh, first written, there was a uh, very common form of false teaching that started permeating a lot of churches called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism uh, said that Jesus wasn't really God and that salvation is achieved by acquiring knowledge. And so one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae is because he was basically saying, hey, no, 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 no. Jesus really is who he said he is. He really is God. And he and he alone has the power to rescue us from our sins. He, He is who he claimed to be. 
Notice in verse 15 that Jesus is referred to as the image of the invisible God. Okay, now Paul isn't saying that, you know, Jesus is a substitute for the Lord God. He doesn't say that Jesus was merely a representative sent on behalf of God. No, Jesus is the manifestation of God to us, okay, in a form in which we can see, know, and understand. This is why Paul wrote in another letter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. He said, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for many, for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now imagine if you had $100,000 worth of credit card debt and I stood up here and I offered to pay off all the debt that you have. Now most of us would probably jump at that chance. I mean, you'd be dumb not to, right? Now that word ransom that Paul used was a monetary term used to describe the payment that someone would give to free a slave. But in order for you to be free from the enslavement of debt, you have to first admit that you have debt. I mean, I can't stand up here and pay you off your credit card if you can't first admit that you, you owe something. Take a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9 in our text. Paul says, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see, Christmas is about God pursuing us and choosing to live with us so that we can know him. I mean, if I were God, I don't know about you, I probably would have done some things differently. I mean, instead of Mary being conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus probably would have had some grand entrance from the sky, from heaven, coming down for all people to see. I would have chosen a palace for him to have been born into rather than a stable. Mary wouldn't have traveled on a donkey. I probably would have chosen her to be in some kind of like Rolls Royce chariot back then. Jesus wouldn't have lived in some redneck podunk town called Nazareth. He would have lived in Rome, the epicenter of culture back then. And I would have made sure that he had a very robust 401k, not living in poverty. And I would have made sure that he chose followers who at least had master's degree, who at least attended college, not some fisherman. I mean, I would have written things a little bit different. But instead... Instead, Jesus entered the world playing off a script that none of us could anticipate and that none of us would probably even write. Why is that? Well, is it possible? Is it possible that Jesus had to live like us in order to save us? I mean, if he entered the world in some grand ways and lived some opulent lifestyle, could we really relate and would we really have heard what he had to say I mean, which way, ask yourself, which way requires more power? The script that we would have written or the script that Jesus lived off of? And so here, here's the thing. Okay, Jesus became one of us instead of living above us. Now don't get me wrong, he was above creation, okay, yet he became a creation. He existed for eternity and yet he lived 33 years here on earth. You see, becoming one of us was the only language that we would understand, and God, God knew that. Let's keep going in verse 16. Paul describes the sovereignty and vast reign of King Jesus by writing, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Not just some things. Paul says all all things. And so what this means is that the, literally the planets orbit in a pattern. Atmospheric gases rise and move, making the earth inhabitable. The leaves on your oak tree change and fall every October. Your golden retriever welcomes you at the front door when you come home. Your heart beats with this consistent rhythm every moment of the day. And Paul's saying that all creation, every movement that occurs in this universe doesn't happen apart from Jesus allowing it. Abraham Kuyper was the prime minister of the Netherlands during the 20th century, and he's probably most famously known for writing this. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the church. He is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Jesus came to reconcile. He conquered death not just so that we could be forgiven of our our sin, although that's a big part of it. He conquered death so that one day every dimension of creation can be restored back to the way that it was intended to be before sin screwed everything up. Jesus is our everlasting father because reconciliation doesn't happen apart from sacrifice. Now let's time out here for just a second, okay? I know some of us listening right now, we might be having a difficult time Seeing Jesus as our everlasting father, because let's just be straight, maybe you don't have a good relationship with your dad. In fact, there are a lot of issues that fall hardest on women and children in our society today because somewhere along the way, a man didn't step up to provide, to do what he was called to do. And so maybe for you, your dad didn't keep his promises. Maybe for you, your dad called you names. Maybe for you, your dad just wasn't there for you the way that you needed him to be. And so it's a little bit difficult for you to see Jesus as an everlasting father because you haven't had a good example of that in your life. And, and if that's you, I, I just want you to know I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know the specifics of your story. I don't know the pain and hurt that you carry because of the relationship you had or didn't have with your dad. But is it possible, is it possible that your heavenly father is nothing like your earthly father? You see, the call to fatherhood is really a call to sacrifice. God calls men to provide, to protect, and care for his children, and yet those functions, again, don't happen apart from sacrifice. And so as hard as it may be, what I want you to do is I just want you to try to lay some of those things aside, to put aside the baggage that comes when hearing that word for a few minutes. And so if Jesus has really been given this title of everlasting father, let's just get practical, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today? Well, first thing is this, you might want to write this down. You are cared for more than you know. You are cared for more than you know. Our Christmas would have never happened. 
Never would have happened if God was just some distant, impersonal, cosmic force, callous and immune to the needs of his creation. Jesus said it like this in one of his most famous speeches, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus then says, are you not more value than they? You see, the worth that you possess, the worth that every individual has is determined by the level of sacrifice that Jesus willingly endured on our behalf. After all, if Jesus surrendered his life for us, is there really anything that he won't do for us, to care for us? You know, I usually do my best to hide the fact that I'm a pastor when people ask me what I do, and I do that for really two reasons. Uh, number one, people feel like they've got to put on this facade, act like they're better than they are, walk into a restaurant, they hide their beer. I'm like, come on, I mean, you know. I'll never forget, a couple years ago, we had just uh, moved into a new house, and um, I was meeting our neighbor for the very first time. It was about 8 o'clock at night. All three of my kids were in the backyard. We were just hanging out, having a great time, and uh, neighbor comes over, over the fence. We start talking, and I got to tell you, this guy started cussing like a sailor, F-bomb every other word, and that didn't offend me. In fact, I was quite impressed because he was using the F word in ways that I didn't even know could be used. And so about 10 minutes into the conversation, he then said, so now tell me, Patrick, what do you do for a living? I'm like, well, actually, I'm, I'm a pastor. No lie. When I said that, he goes, oh, well, praise the good Lord. <laughs> I'm like, something's not adding up here, dude. And so when people hear that we're pastors, you know, they feel like they've got to put on this facade, put on this front, like they're better off than that they really are. But the other reason why I don't like telling people that is because, honestly, a lot of people have walked through life and have experienced a lot of legit hurt and pain. And so it causes them to ask some questions that are really tough, that are really tough to answer. How can a good God allow me to suffer, to walk through what I've, what I've experienced and and, you know, you expect, just to be honest, you expect to hear a message like this around Christmas. Chances are this is not the first time you've heard someone say, hey, God cares for us. God cares for you. He cares for you more than you know. But let's be honest. Does, does he really? I mean, it all sounds so cliche. It sounds like some bumper sticker that you buy at a Christian bookstore. And I know some of the arguments that some of us right now are having in our minds goes like this. If God cared for me, why did the car accident happen? What about the miscarriage? How come the divorce was finalized? Why did the cancer return? If God really cares for me, where was he when I was being abused? What about when my husband cheated on me? Why was my child born with a disability? What, what about being laid off? Now, one thing you may not know about me is that, <clears throat> and I'm not really proud to admit this, but I struggle with depression, and I've battled depression since I was about 17 years old. And let me just be honest with you, okay? I've done all the right things. I've gone to therapy. I've gone to counseling. I've taken medication, and yet none of it seems to really work for all that long. I mean, I've often said, I don't know where I'd be if it weren't for prayer, pills, and people. <laughs> and yet... In my honest and raw moments with God, I've said, God, you care for me, but you allow me to go through this mental torment. Why does it feel like I'm talking to nobody when I pray? And look, I, I, I get it. If you've ever been angry or confused by God or you thought you could do his job better than him, I'm a part of that club. I've got that t-shirt. 
Now, I have no idea what, what hurt you're being forced to carry right now. You'll never hear me, you'll never hear Brad stand up here and say, well, you know, if you just had more faith, if you just believed a little bit better or believed a little bit stronger, then things wouldn't have happened to you the way that they did. And then all of a sudden, you know, life will be like walking through a park. Now, in fact, Jesus told us just the opposite. He said, you know, in this world, you're going to have trouble. A few days later, they nailed him to a cross. I think he knows what he's talking about. So instead of giving you something to do, I want to challenge you with one thing that I have to remind myself whenever my depression creeps in or my past starts to haunt me, it goes like this. Don't confuse God's silence for his absence. Don't confuse God's silence for, for his absence. Because if this is true, it, cha it changes everything. The interesting thing about the Christmas story is that there was a time when it seemed as if the Jewish people had been overlooked by, by God. It seemed as if they were waiting on God. He was silent, they, so they naturally interpreted his silence for, for his absence. This period is actually known as the 400 years of silence. This is why Isaiah wrote in chapter 9, verse 2, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In other words, every single day for 400 years, okay, the Israelite nation resided in darkness. You get the sense that this was their, their daily ongoing reality. Their suffering, in other words, was inescapable. It weighed on them day and night. But just when God appeared absent, Jesus showed up and became one of us. He, he didn't come as some Lord who was immune to suffering. No, his life was literally defined by pain and grief. Why? Maybe, maybe so that we would know we aren't alone in our suffering. And so whatever form of grief, whatever form of pain you may be walking through right now, I promise you this, you're not experiencing something, you're not feeling something that Jesus hasn't gone through himself. This is why Isaiah later referred to Jesus in chapter 53 as a man of suffering, a man of sorrows. And so here's the other thing. That Jesus as our Heavenly Father means. It means that life starts now, not later. It means life starts now, not, not later. You see, Jesus is king for all of eternity. And I think one of the basis of our problems isn't that our problems seem too big, but when our problems seem too big, sometimes it's because our view of Jesus is way too small. You see, his death paid for our life. But you see, sometimes we think that the kingdom of God is this life that we'll experience once we die. We've kind of conveyed the idea in, uh, idea in the church over the years that eternity starts after our funeral. And so the cross is merely seen as this, you know, get out of jail free card. And yet we're offered so much more than that. Author Dallas Willard puts it like this. The gospel, in other words, the message of Jesus, what he came to do for us, is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven after you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. And so Christmas tells us that we're not waiting for eternity to start because it's already begun. Therefore, if that's true, how are we called to live in the here and now? What's our purpose from this moment on? Now, I think it's really important for us to uh, not overcomplicate this or to overthink this, the natural response to Christmas has always been the exact same. 
When I was in seminary, uh, we learned something called the law of first mention when studying scripture. And the law of first mention basically says that if you want to truly understand a concept in scripture, if you really want to understand a command in scripture, simply go to the point in the Bible when it is first talked about, when it is first mentioned, and you can see how God most clearly and purely designed and intended for it to for it to come across, for it to be known, and for us to comprehend and, and experience. So the law of first mention basically says that a spring is purest at its source. And so the first people to learn about the Christmas story were a group of shepherds. What did they do? How did they understand and realize and live out that life starts now, not later? Take a look at how Luke said it. As they responded to this news that life starts now, not later. Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. You've heard it before. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Now, it's tough for us to really understand the shock value of what's playing out here. Last week, Brad talked about how uh, degraded women and children were back in the first century world. So in other words, without a father or male figure in someone's life, women and children were essentially unclaimed property. Now, the other thing playing out here that's really surprising is realizing how despicable of an industry shepherding was, especially in the eyes of religious leaders, okay? Shepherds had no status, right? They had no standing in society, and there was nobody to provide for him. They were such outcasts, okay? They were such outcasts in their culture that their testimony was not accepted in the court of law. More than likely, this group of shepherds were just a bunch of orphan boys with no home. And yet, yet they're the first ones to learn about Christmas, about Jesus' birth. Not a great PR move, God. Well, the shepherds couldn't help but tell others about what they had experienced that night. And so in an instant, they went from orphaned to chosen. They went from excluded to invited. Luke says that they made known the Christmas message. The original word Luke used here to convey what they did literally meant to experience something, to know something on an intimate level while making others aware of it. So what happened was they simply found something good and they wanted to go and tell other people about it. And this is the only appropriate response to the message of Christmas. Our job is to go and tell as many people as possible about how this life that Jesus offers starts now, not, not later. Now hang tight with me because I'm going to wrap all this up together. The band's going to come up here once they get back from their smoke break. All right? And <laughs> before they close this out, I'll, I'll give us some homework to walk away with. And you know, i got to tell you, the thing that I love most about this church is that we truly believe that we exist for people not here yet. It was Jesus who said, after all, that it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but it's the sick. And, and so the thing that I've observed about all of you over the past several months is that we see this place truly as a hospital, not a country club. Adventure has experienced a lot of growth over the past three years. Our friends and neighbors are getting a chance to learn that God doesn't hate them. God's actually for them and that he hasn't given up on them. Now, adventure isn't perfect. You know why? 
because I'm here. And you're here. And we're sinners. In fact, if we haven't disappointed you yet, just give us a few more weeks. <laughs> we're all broken. We're all in need of forgiveness and, and patience. And so I want to be really clear about something. We haven't arrived as a church. The greatest threat to future success is past success. Likewise, the biggest obstacle to future growth is past growth. And so if we really believe what we say we believe, then action will follow. Now, I don't know about you, but I really do believe at the end of the day that Jesus is greater, Jesus is stronger, Jesus is smarter than whatever we face in life. He is greater and is preparing a place for us where there will be no more darkness. The eternity that he paid for is a place where many things that we've grown accustomed to in this life will no longer exist, will be no more. It's a place where there'll be no more emergency rooms, no more anxiety medication, no more divorce court, no more phone calls in the middle of the night, no more layoffs, no more silent treatments, no more chemotherapy, no more carb-free diets, no more open-heart surgeries, no more single parenting, no more wheelchairs, no more physical therapy, no more small caskets. No more funeral homes, no more abuse, no more cyberbullying, no more overdraft fees, no more jealousy, no more credit card debt, no more pornography, no more lies, no more war, no more abortion, no more alcoholism, no more learning disabilities, no more autism, no more hearing aids, no more walkers, no more nursing homes, no more suicide, no more rehab facilities, no more mental illness, no more long sermons. <laughs> No more putting down a pet, no more hospitals, no more breakups, no more traffic jams, no more affairs, no more skinny jeans. Amen. This really shouldn't surprise us, though, because Paul says in another letter, hey, here's the deal. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And so if all of this is true, if all of this is true, then don't the people far from God in our life deserve a shot at least checking this Jesus guy out? Because, I mean, at the very least, they deserve for us to not answer for them before inviting them to, to church. You see, Christians read the Bible. Non-believers read Christians. And so how will this impact the way that you interact with people in your life who are maybe far from God? Now, there are two weekends throughout the entire year when people are most likely to attend church more so than any other weekend if, if you invite them. And that's Christmas and that's Easter. And so on Christmas Eve Eve, on the 23rd, we're hosting a service at 7 p.m. here, okay? And I can promise you this, we will be ready. We're going to have a lot of fun on Christmas Eve Eve. Matt and the band have a great Christmas song playing. Kids Ministry is going to show off the song that they've been practicing and working on. And the best part, Brad is only going to preach for 30 minutes. So he says, consider it a miracle if that actually happens. <laughs> but here's what you can expect on Christmas Eve Eve is that we're going to make a big deal about Jesus. Not about the lights, not about the songs or the sermons. No, the more important conversations about Jesus will be the ones that you have in the car ride home, at dinner afterwards, on a text thread, at the kitchen table with people that you bring with you. You see, it's not our job to change anyone. I don't have that ability. Brad doesn't have that ability. That's not why we're here. Our job isn't to change anyone. All we do is offer up a chance for people to get in the same room with Jesus so that he can begin to work some things out with, with them. And so next Friday is a great chance 
for them to hear that Jesus has not given up on them. They aren't overlooked. This is the number one reason we exist as a church, and this is the number one reason why we do all that we do here at Adventure. So here's your homework. Write this question down. Very simple. Who is close to you, but far from God? Who is close to you, but but far from God? I want you to think of a name. We're going to get really practical here. Think of a name, and I want you to hang on to that. Do you know the one thing that Jesus wants for his birthday? Which, by the way, what do you give the creator of the universe for his birthday? Well, I'll tell you what he wants. He wants people. More people. And so what if next weekend is the moment when things begin to click for him or her? What what if accepting your invitation to church is the first step in maybe getting their marriage back? What if inviting them to church actually derails their suicide plan? Who is close to you but far from God? I want you to go ahead and pull your phones out. I I want you to text them right now before the service is over. So go ahead and do that. Yes, I'm giving you permission to pull your phone out, all right? Some of you are like, well, I I can't do that because I don't really know what to say. I mean, this is awkward. No worries. We got your back. I'm going to put a sample text up here on the screen that I want to encourage you to text them right now before you leave church. All right, go ahead and pull your phones out. Here's a great sample text. You can copy this verbatim or put it into your own words. Hey, I don't know what your plans are for the 23rd, but I'd love to invite you to Adventure Christian Church. Service is at 7 p.m. I can pick you up or meet you there. That's it. Will you come with me? What do you think? End with a question. Nothing weird, nothing religious, just simple and to the point. All you're doing is saying, hey, I found something really good. And I think you'd like it too. Why don't you come and see what God's doing at Adventure. I'm going to pray. Before you leave the parking lot, I want you to send that text. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you so much. I love what you're doing in this place. And the truth is, all of our stories go like this. that We were in darkness. We were lost. We were knee-deep in debt deep in depression maybe addiction our marriage was on the rocks relationships were shaky and just when we thought that you overlooked us you reminded us that none of us are too far gone and that changes everything and I know that there are a lot of people in our life who are close to us but maybe far from you that are living apart from you would you just give us the courage to engage them, to text them, to talk with them and say, hey, I found something good. I think you'd like it too. And I pray that hearts would be softened, that eyes would be opened, and that this is the best Christmas Eve Eve service that this church has ever experienced because we're on mission. And Jesus, what we want to give you for your birthday are more people. It's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.